Hello, I'm Rebecca Castellano, and this is Hopping the Fence, a podcast dedicated to talking to artists on the fringes of the Canadian art scene. Jackie Shaw is a strategic futurist and design anthropologist with a hybrid practice that combines design, research, education, and consulting. Their work is grounded in and supports critical explorations of design's role and use in creating the future. Inspired by their own lived experience as a Philippinex Bermudan settler in what is currently Canada, their work orients towards inclusive, equitable, and liberatory futures informed by decolonial, feminist, respectful design, design justice, anti-oppressive oriented praxis. Jackie holds a Master's of Design in Strategic Foresight and Innovation from OCAD University and a Bachelor's in Communication Design from Emily Carr, University of Art and Design. They are currently based in Toronto. Our conversation was recorded in Toronto on the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee, Huron-Wendat, Anishinaabe, and Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nations. Hey again! Just popping in to say that this episode will be longer than usual because I asked Jackie to lend their design expertise to discuss the motif used in Hopping the Fences cover art. This discussion, on top of our interview about their practice, led to some interesting topics I couldn't bear to edit out. Hope you enjoy! This episode of Hopping the Fence contains the Diesler, discussions of the carceral system, and cannabis use. Hey, Jackie. Hey, Rebecca. How's it going? Oh, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, but it's going well. I've got some incense burning and Ooh. I'm chilling. And where are you burning incense right now? Yeah, so right now I'm in my apartment in Toronto, Toronto, in Parkdale. So do you want to talk a bit about what your practice involves for listeners who might not know about your work? Yeah, so I am a designer slash researcher slash foresight strategist slash, I think that's actually it (laughs) (laughs) for now. I do a whole bunch of things, but mostly I come out of a practice of graphic design and communication design. Mm -hmm. And then going into my master's work, I kind of left that world and went more into like design thinking, which is kind of in all design, and then foresight stuff. It's the meeting of like future studies and and speculative stuff and strategic thinking and planning. And so how do we envision futures and then how do we get to those futures? So that's kind of my, my main practice. Do you want to speak a little bit about your MRP? Specifically, I'm thinking about the stickers that you showed me a while back they talk about black and brown labor. I'm really curious to hear more about that. Yeah, my MRP, so my major research project Mm -hmm. in finishing my master's at OCAD in strategic foresight and innovation involved a lot of different work. So I worked under Dr. Dori Kunstel, who's the first dean of any design school in the world. So she's the undergrad design dean. Mm -hmm. And working with her was like super generative in the way that her practice is around decolonizing design and decolonizing the institution. Yeah, I made a lot of zines. I did a lot of stream of consciousness writing that I ended up making into academic writing using graphic design and adding the citations in like a a thoughtful way. Having a practice that's all over the place and like talking to a lot of different people about my practice I forget bits, (laughs) like I exclude bits that I'm like, oh, that's not my practice. But yeah, part of my practice is zine making as well. So that came out in my MRP, like zines and like little printed goods. So the stickers that Mm -hmm. you're talking about, they are a tan to black gradient in the background. And they say, whose black labor did you benefit from? Whose brown labor did you benefit from? Mm -hmm. And I made those because I was... I think I was in a conversation with someone, as I usually am, about labor and and especially, like, kind of the invisible 
labor or like the labor you don't think about there being every day because it's so routine so going to university always going to the Tim Hortons and like it's so often that it's brown people working at the Tim Hortons who like made your morning coffee who got up at 4 a.m to go to work Hmm. so that I got to have my shitty chicken wrap And I think about that a lot. I think about the brown and black labor that goes unseen or goes ignored more so because we just kind of take advantage or like take it for granted that Mm. it's just there. So I wanted to make those stickers as a way to pose that question, especially the zine work I do is just getting like thoughts out of my head. Yeah. So I have another zine called Mm. One in a Minion that is just a collection of photographs of minions that I've taken (laughs) throughout whatever the last five years like I started taking minion pictures minions like in balloons on cakes like in the wild yeah like minions that I see minions in the wild (laughs) and so it's like a compilation of wild images in that scene because it's just a little short guy it came out of the absurd ubiquity of minions So there's like a figurine I saw in Portugal that was like in a tourist shop that's like the mother and child, but it's painted like a minion, which is like a favorite of mine. I've like trained my brain to see them, which weirdly links to that brown labor where it's like, these are things I've just trained my brain to see. And now they're stuck in my brain and I just need other people to see them Mm -hmm. (laughs) everywhere. It feels like you're translating your view of the world into these visual materials, which is such a fun practice for a graphic designer, I feel like. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. That's a cool way to put it. Instead of me just being like, yeah, I have these dumb thoughts and I beat them out of my head. (laughs) (laughs) But you are training yourself to see these specific things, whereas other people aren't. So it's you've packaged your lens and these very specific ways. Mm, I'm going to use that. I'm going to take that with me. In a roundabout way, those are those stickers. Those are my zines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my MRP is filled with zines. Objects that are, like, easily shareable. I'm trying to, like, reduce my use of the word disseminate, but I do love the word disseminate. It's a good word. (laughs) But, yeah, take, like, having an object that's easily shareable, that can be easily copied, So two of those zines started to explore my own positionality. So the first one is just laying out how I got to this MRP project, which Mm -hmm. included me being born, me (laughs) growing up in a certain culture, me then being moved to a different culture, and then all the thoughts that led me to this one project and the positionality of it being so important because... I work looking at intersectionality and like equity in design in my research practice. So Dory kept being like, okay, tell me about yourself. Tell me about yourself. (laughs) I feel like I'm telling you about myself. And she's like, sit down and make me a zine about yourself one day in her office. And I just like cried the whole time. Finding your positionality and making that public, especially when you're a person of various marginalized identities is heart-wrenching and really hard to look at sometimes yeah and applying labels to yourself sometimes can feel like at least for me a bit violent Mm -hmm. there is this I want to say notion but it's an action of outing yourself in this process as well so even though I'm out as so many different identities to people (laughs) mentally ill non-binary, queer, gay, lesbian, dyke, what else? Like mixed, right? Like all these things that you can't tell just looking at me. It's like, ugh. And then because we're so used to having those identities used to invalidate the work we do, it's also scary to like put that in your scholarly work because then you're like, well, is anyone going to take this work seriously because it's made by me which is part of the problem and then the second zine in the mrp series is called unpacking my discomfort Mm. 
And it was also kind of a stream of consciousness piece, but the zine takes the form of a cootie catcher. Those, oh like, yes, I love those. Like, but it's not used like a cootie catcher, but I use that like folding oh, method to mm-hmm. make it so that as you're learning about my unpacking of the discomfort, you're literally unpacking and unfolding this piece. You have to move it around. Sometimes it gets confusing which direction to read it in. Yeah, yeah. And then the third zine in the series is kind of the final output zine. So it outlines the framework that I propose for intentional intersectional practice in design. It's your classic, like, make a zine out of one piece of paper, eight-page little booklet. Gotcha. So that it could be easily photocopied and then shared amongst people. Mm -hmm. And then people get to have fun learning how to make a little book. And I always love seeing people struggle with the, like, eight-page zine folding. But that's also a fun, hands-on moment for people as well. While you're learning about this thing, you're also, like, having to physically handle the ephemera that is, like, teaching you these things. Yeah, and that's so interesting, especially beside your cootie catcher one, because you're literally... You have to hold your discomfort in your hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those were really fun to work through. It felt like such a great opportunity to do something really thoughtful and intentional in the way that I'm conveying the message. Yeah, uh, and it gives a conceptual backing to it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and especially coming out of a program like the Strategic Foresight Innovation Program at OCAD, it's very art school in the way that no one knows what is going on ever. (laughs) Just the way that art schools exist in that way. But very like business school and that you're being taught a lot of business concepts and, and not just like how to run a business, but corporate strategy concepts Hmm. and a lot of stuff that comes out of the corporate world by a lot of corporate or academic older white men. Yeah. So it it felt good to get back to my quote-unquote art school roots and uh, and get to like make something where like every moment of it is thoughtful, not just the content that's in it. Yeah. To go back to like my zines. Oh, yeah. So I was tabling at a zine fair. It was my first zine fair. And I have this one zine that's just like an essay that I published. And the references, I made the font super tiny because they're just like a shitty little zine and you know, who, who wants to check the references? <laughs> and I had this like older woman come by and she like pointed out to me, she was like, oh, like this type is so tiny. I purposely made that tiny because I was like, oh, well, no one wants to read my references. So I literally like made that decision <laughs> for literally anyone who bought my Z, right? Yeah. Like I said, oh, people aren't going to want to read this and then someone wanted to read it even if it was just to like flip through it at my table and they couldn't and that like was like a year ago and it is still stuck with me right do you want to talk about your art school roots and a bit how that like clashes or or helps in your design practice yeah 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 yeah. so I did my undergrad in Vancouver so on the unceded coastal Salish territories of the Tsleil-Waututh, Musqueam, and Squamish people back when it was on Granville Island, not in the fancy new campus. I did my undergrad in communication design. So I've been doing design and have been pursuing a career in design since I was around 16, 17, like in high school, like also that kid who like hung out in the art room, Mm -hmm. but like played on the computers making like little graphic design posters and stuff for like my deviant art. So (laughs) I've been on this path for a long time. Emily Carr was great. Emily Carr has, I don't know if OCAD undergrad does it, but Emily Carr has a foundation year, Mm -hmm. which is just you do whatever. You are like streamed into your like preferred major those classes a little bit Mm -hmm. but you can kind of take any kind of art so I was taking photo I was taking design I was taking critical studies and also my undergrad was where my real political awakening happened Mm. 
because I grew up in just, you know, a regular home. Like my mom's an accountant. My dad graduated high school, but was like mostly a trades worker or a boat pilot until we moved to Canada. So just like blue collar work. Going to Emily Carr, I was like introduced to like critical thought, <laughs> like critical theory. Being critical. Being, yeah, being critical. That things have meaning, right? Yeah. That, that very basic, hey, visual culture actually is a language and visual language can be used in these ways. Yeah, I had never known because art and design to me was really aesthetic based. How was the work that you made in your undergrad different from your practice now? So the design I made in my undergrad, it was kind of the, the same and different. Like my work never really looks like anything in particular, Yeah, which sometimes bugs me. Like I have friends <laughs> who are designers. People go to them for their style. But my work has never looked like that. My work is really the process of it. And this is like the process I was taught in my undergrad. The traditional like form follows function. You think about what you're saying, what the needs, quote unquote, of the client, but also just like the needs of the project or the needs of the message require. And then like, how do you express that? Mm -hmm. And yeah, that really fed into my MRP and like that really feeds into my practice. This episode's podcast recommendation is from One Dish, One Mic. In the heart of the One Dish with One Spoon Treaty territory, Niagara's Sean Vanderclis and Carl Dockstader dish on any and all issues. Listen to the episode We're Smarter to learn about what his school meant to Indigenous people. What did Jennifer Dockstader do? What the heck happened at Brock U? Hosts Sean and Carl answer these questions and more on the most educational Indigenous podcast in all of Niagara. So, like, in my current practice as it exists, Mm -hmm. writing foresight scenarios, which are, like, stories, essentially, like, writing, like, speculative fiction, Mm -hmm. or writing like strategy plans or giving talks and presentations, like those kind of things so easily get ignored, like the method of delivery. Mm -hmm. But I was also a big Marshall McLuhan fan in my undergrad around the, the medium is the message. And then in my undergrad, my undergrad thesis project really started me on this route of looking at design, not just as like something for businesses or something for clients, but as a tool that can imagine and speculate changes. So my undergrad thesis was looking at what would cannabis culture look like if we remove the current visual culture and the current stigma around it. So I did that in 2013, 2014. So before legalization Um, yeah before legalization and I proposed this project to my profs and they were like yeah just like run it by the assistant dean or something but Mm -hmm. someone like higher up they're like we just want to make sure that you don't like do this project and then because it's about marijuana gets mixed halfway through yeah yeah now that I talk about it I can talk about it with this language of like oh yeah it was actually a speculative design project and it was actually like looking at all these things When I proposed it then, it was like rebranding marijuana. Mm. As the conversation around pot changes, how do we allow the visual culture to like change with it? Yeah. That was my undergrad thesis. And that's what led me into this. Oh, design can be used in these ways that look at culture as a whole and then translates it out and like feeds it back in mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. the culture I think art um, functions the same way like holding a mirror to society being like this is what you're producing and like this is how you're presenting yeah totally totally so my undergrad I feel like a lot of people especially in my program did an undergrad that was so different from 
art school or so different from design school mm-hmm. where I came from design school and then I came from the design brand strategy world and then I went into a design strategy program and then was like oh this is absolutely not like the design school I'm used to mm. <laughs> how do you think that design around cannabis has changed because I am all about a variety of aesthetics with weed because I think that Mm -hmm. people are so pigeonholed into this idea of being a lazy stoner that's not productive and I don't know is a white person with dreads you know like that very that aesthetic (laughs) yeah oh I have a lot of thoughts on weed (laughs) and the aesthetics of it and and how the design has worked for it and this also feeds back to my thinking of that old project is that Weed obviously has become incredibly gentrified Mm -hmm. in its commercialization. So as we know, people still are in prisons for weed-related offenses, while in Toronto especially, there's a shop that's owned by an ex-cop. So like an ex-cop is literally getting rich off of the crimes that people are in prison for. And then with that comes all these aesthetics. So people really trying to move away from the idea of like a dirty lazy stoner going into that clean hip boutique Mm -hmm. apple store yeah apple store wine shop coffee store kind of feel the closest adjacent markets are coffee and alcohol yeah in the way that weed is being sold to us to be used recreationally and as it exists already in amsterdam or even in bc these things are set up like coffee shops. So Mm -hmm. why wouldn't they end up looking exactly like coffee shops? Yeah. When I was doing my project, there was an element of education around cannabis culture as well. You walk into this coffee shop looking space that is all about cannabis, about cannabis culture. But then there's also this element of this is also a place where people who are interested in cannabis can come and learn different things from mm. what each strain does, how that makes you feel, to the criminalization of cannabis done. Yeah. How does that exist? And I think that should exist in contemporary legalized weed mm. culture. Even if it was just these places would work with prisoners' rights or to just have their information in the store. Ontario only allowed, what, 30 dispensaries to open? Yeah. April 1st, 2019. Doug Ford screwed up the last system where they made it like a lottery system where just a bunch of rich people put in their names who never had experience in cannabis. So it really screwed everyone up. Like Alberta did it so smoothly. Why can't we do that? Yeah. BC did it decently as well. Before I left BC, it was pre-legalization, but there's dispensaries everywhere. On some corners, it was like a Starbucks. You're like, well, I'm going to go to the... (laughs) the dispensary on the northeast corner this time because I have this thing instead of going to the one like down the block or like on the other corner that's what Dundas is turning into there's like three weed shops that have opened up and because I'm in quarantine I'm not walking as much so every time I walk outside there's like two new ones Parkdale as well and like Queen West I guess oh yeah because we're walked to the Tokyo Smoke that just opened up near the Gladstone oh yeah ish and there's like three dispensaries opening in Parkdale at some point, so I guess, Corona willing. Yeah. I um, wonder how many, like, I'd love to see the racial data on this because I, how many white people own these shops? <laughs> there's only, there's only one black owned dispensary know, in Toronto. Bo- Bodega. And that's where I go. Bodega. On Ossington. Yeah. Cause I am a white lady benefiting off of the violence that's been happening yeah. in the cannabis industry for years. So. Yeah. And then, so like the current, realm of yeah cannabis is this shiny new white gentrified look cannabis is also so many other things even just like aesthetic wise if we want to just be super shallow about it like where's the hippie weed store where's the quote-unquote urban culture one so many of these cultures have fed into cannabis culture Mm. and now that cannabis is legal it all just got filtered back out yeah, look like an LCBO. Well, really sanitized, really whitewashed, like mm-hmm. made to appeal to white soccer moms. But I think that's a good segue into talking about the fence logo and how 
these ideas of coolness or urbanness do become whitewashed and co-opted by white people to make money or look cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah, we had this discussion, I guess, I don't know, time's not real. (laughs) We, We had this discussion in the past talking about it specifically around tattoos and the use of wire fences or or barbed wire fences as just an aesthetic. Oh, that looks so cool. Oh, that looks so tough. But these things have histories, especially in tattooing. Barbed Mm -hmm. wire and wire fences are used to signify incarceration, right? And so the broken fence or chains being cut, fence being cut, that Mm -hmm. signifies leaving incarceration so getting out of the prison system the hope of staying out of the prison system which we know can be incredibly hard because the system's set up to keep you there yeah yeah and i've thought about this for years and years and and never really figured out how to articulate it because i come from a middle class background my class has jumped around a lot Mm -hmm. in my life so Coming from working middle class to when we moved to Canada, hitting true middle class home. We had property growing up in Bermuda, but it was family owned and multi-generational. So Mm -hmm. we had one house, but it was split into apartments. I grew up not in a bad part of town as a kid, but just like in an industrial-ish area. And also with Bermuda, there's not a lot of wood structures because it gets wet and humid and things rot really quickly unless it's like a non-rotting wood, like cedar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've always thought that like the image of a wire fence, it's this symbolization of working in middle-class homes or Mm -hmm. affordable fencing. So not only does it have this rich history that comes out of tattooing and comes out of black and brown communities but also just like a working class fence in vancouver when i moved there gentrification is rife the property switches hands people there's a lot of house flipping a lot of renovations Mm -hmm. and in some of the neighborhoods i lived in or my friends lived in you'd walk and you'd be like oh yeah there's quote-unquote nice fences but then you can tell the houses that are really getting used to their full potential that's a multi-generational Asian family and the grandmother is out back growing bitter melon Mm -hmm. kind of homes those always have wire fences involved at some point yeah I think fences really dictate a neighborhood being in little Portugal little Italy there are those chain link fences but they're covered in that green coating that's plastic yeah yeah so that gives it a layer and I associate that with European homes versus Mm -hmm. yeah people who couldn't afford the wooden fences I grew up in suburban Oshawa had the chain link fences and it came Mm -hmm. with like an idea of institution or a quick fence going up because something's getting demolished and rebuilt like it's very much about like gentrification for me so hearing this tie back to obviously the carceral system makes a lot of sense tearing down fences and tearing down these walls around institutions. That is a very powerful image that's kind of been disseminated, disseminated. (laughs) (laughs) But like proliferated across like a lot of white cultures where I see it as tattoos and I don't identify it as necessarily within the prison system or the institutional system, but I more relate it back to like suburban Oshawa, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, it also depends on the context. Like no one owns the image of a fence. No one owns that imagery. But I think especially like when we had this conversation originally, it was because a white queer got, was it a fence or was it, it was some kind of cursorial, like maybe it was handcuffs being cut. Those images mean something. Those images, even though whatever, they're not sacred or they don't belong to someone. If you have not been incarcerated, don't get prison tattoos, right? (laughs) The the symbolism of breaking the chains, breaking the fences as a tattoo come from trying to escape the system. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I find that especially a lot of white queers use these images because they're tough. They're cool. Yeah, they seem tough and cool because literal prisoners and ex-prisoners ex-incarcerated people have them (laughs) yeah yeah as designers as artists 
our livelihoods or like our practices or like our lives are built around understanding and creating and emulating visual culture. So we should know these things. Mm-hmm. People who are coming to you are coming to you because you're an expert in your field, right? Yeah. You have not only the expertise of you can stick this needle in my skin and the ink will go there, but they have the practice of drawing. They have the practice of making images. They have, for the most part, blood safe. So you're not going to get a bloodborne pathogen. I think the extra layer also here is that the tattoo artist that for us brought this up specifically was also called out for anti-black behavior. So I think if you're using these images and you're behaving in anti-black ways, anti-indigenous ways, obviously you have something to unpack there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's a big thing too, right? Are you accountable to these communities that you're taking from Mm -hmm. or do you just think that looks cool, right? It's the classic appropriation conversation. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. My next podcast recommendation will be from Canada the Land. Specifically, episode number 337, 1492 Landback Lane. Listen to hear Sean Vanderclis and Carl Dockstadter, the hosts of One Dish, One Mic, tell reporter and media critic Jesse Brown what they saw at the Six Nations encampment. How do you think that designers have been accountable and, and how do you hold yourself accountable as a designer who also exists in the art world? There's not much accountability, especially in the classic corporate branding, graphic design, commercial world. Because that world gets away with so much shit, constantly. It is lazy and it looks bad and people don't care and people hide behind clients. But we can hold ourselves accountable, right? To segue into my practice of intentional intersectionality, that practice is really around understanding how to hold yourself accountable and how to practice design in a way that looks at the societal impact of it. So looking at a design anthropology lens. And so design anthropology is the practice of looking at design as it affects society or That could be anything from design outcomes to the ways that designers think and work and process things. Yeah. So my practice in intentional intersectional design took from the framework of design thinking, which is so hot. Um, So hot. So hot. That's like if you go to design school from the early 2010s to now, that's like what they teach their life. I get it. When I learned about design thinking, I was like, oh, that is how my brain works. My brain really jives with this process of thinking and doing and collaborating. At its core, design thinking, it's promoted by everyone, but it comes out of the Stanford D School and an IDOU. When you have a project, you don't just sit down and you design it. You explore. So you like look at other designs, you get visual inspiration, you get inspiration from other places, you really think about what the needs of the client are, what those Mm -hmm. wants are. And then the big one that's problematic is that you empathize. Uh So (laughs) this new realm of human centered design is really around empathizing coming from co creating facilitating workshops, like actually listening to people. Mm But sometimes I empathize, just, oh, I read this thing about this person. Very shallow. Mm -hmm. But then this process goes through exploring and iterating your proposed design solution, launching that design solution, and then getting feedback from that. And then it's like a cycle. Mm. Um, Yeah, if you're a designer who went through school, or if you're a designer that reads the design blogs or anything, most people know what design thinking is by now. So intentional, intersectional practice in design took those same steps and reflected the same ideas in exploring or in doing your research. First of all, it was showing up, showing up that you're going to unpack whatever garbage society is like. (laughs) 
inundated you with and that you're here to do good work. I went to a conference last summer, presented this work. It was like a professional development conference, not like an academic one. But another speaker was talking about something similar, being very thoughtful in your process and use the phrase, this isn't going to make your work easier. It's not going to make your work quicker. It's going to be better. Mm. I feel like so much of the things we learn in design, and especially when you go to these professional development conferences, is how to make your work more efficient or like how to fix your workflow. So to be presented with something that might actually slow you down and might make your work take longer is always a bit of a challenge. So letting people know that like when you show up to do this work, it requires literally more work, but it'll hopefully pay off because we're creating better things for society and for more people. So yeah, it's like showing up to do the work. It's educating yourself, listening to people, losing your ego in a way. Understanding your own positionality is a big thing. Understanding your own experience Mm -hmm. and how that feeds into all the work you make. Is is that that, why Dory pushed you so hard to make that zine about yourself, you think? Yeah, I mean, she definitely pushed me hard because so much of intersectionality is based in the lived personal experience. Mm -hmm. And I, again, like I said, I think it's because that experience and my experience of my experience is so invalidated so often in many ways that it's hard to express. And it's hard to like know why you're doing things when you don't know where you're coming from on it. Mm -hmm. And also that exposes any blind spots you might have to what you don't know or what experiences you have to look to right so Mm -hmm. if you're working on a project for disabled people let's say and you yourself aren't disabled but because we live in a world where recognizing that you're an able-bodied person isn't like an identity (laughs) that's something like you might not put into account right Mm -hmm. But I mean, most people know about like accessible design and, and like disability. So it's kind of a weak topic, but it's those little things that you don't think about. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's fine. We all have little things we don't think about. What is it? Rush Limbaugh? Like it's a bad quote, but it's like, <laughs> you know, the unknown unknowns. Right. Well, I, would, um, I always think of corner gas. You don't know what you don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's like a very like there's a. There's like a framework around that called the Johari window. That's like four quadrants. The two like axes are like known to you and known to others. Hmm. And so there's like, there's the part that you know and other people know. There's the part that you know and other people don't know. There's the part other people know and you don't know. And then there's the part that like no one knows. Like you don't know, other people know. And like things exist in all of these quadrants. Yeah, yeah. And so when you recognize, as a person, my experience can only take me so far in understanding and then disseminating (laughs) (laughs) Disseminating that understanding out through like a visual medium or through any kind of medium. Yeah. But then thinking that you've made something that's like perfect. It's also harder to like accept critique around it, right? Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. I think that ties in with the myth of the genius, like the myth of the creator of all knowing and like has some nice roots in Catholicism. Oh, yeah, baby. (laughs) Yeah. And like so many people promote collaborate, like obviously like, oh, design, collaboration, oh, Mm -hmm. design, co-design. It's become this very like out of the world of like the singular genius and more into the world of (sighs) almost in a way like saviorism if you're Mm. looking at solving world problems and not just like packaging yeah but even in packaging even in like I look at friends who like run branding studios or I look at at people and they're like oh we're here to like help solve your problems and we're here to like learn your story and then see it like I don't know there's there's something weird about it 
like design thinkers like have to like we have tools to do these things and to like coax out how people want to be perceived like especially in branding or like print design it's well branding is specific it's all about perception yeah so then it's like yeah how is that perceived but not only like how is that perceived by your intended audience but like how is that perceived by your not intended audience or people who you think aren't your intended Mm. audience right an example of that is like MEC or MEC Mm -hmm. or Mountain Equipment Co-op whatever last year a couple years ago kept getting called out all their ads are always white like the people always white and people are like what does that say to BIPOC people who want to go into the outdoors what does mm-hmm. what does you not carrying plus size mean for fat people who want to go outside mm-hmm. like because design gets so tunneled vision into looking at proposed markets or you're like the markets that you're aiming towards or these personas that you're aiming towards it's so easy to like have that tunnel vision mm-hmm. and not realize that you exist in a world with a multitude of yeah. who may or may not want to do this thing. What decisions are you making for people as a designer that limits their choice and limits their agency in a detrimental way? Because, you know, you want to limit people's choice if it's going to be harmful. Like, mm. if you're designing a medical device and you're like, oh, I actually, people shouldn't be able to press this button by accident because <laughs> it'll, you know, inject two times as much or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a choice you can make for people. But being like, I don't like how this looks, so I'm just going to... Or like, oh, I just need two extra pages, so I'm going to make the type smaller. Then you're like, well, that was a that was a mean decision in a way. Yeah, yeah. As a designer, how do you feel you fit within capital F fine art world? Personally, I don't know if I do. I feel like, and this is something I've thought about for a long time as well, is like the relationship especially in schools between like art and design Mm -hmm. and how separated they get out even in our grad studies where we're all in the same building all the time how many design graduate students do you come across or for us like how many fine art students or like applied art students do you come across Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. those worlds are kept so separately and I think Part of that reason as well is like design's insecurities of being a creative field, but also being a very corporate field. Yeah. So having to show suits that you're serious and not just like a wacky artist really like limits us in those ways. And for fine art, like I don't fit into the fine art world at all but like art world you feel like you are a bit more involved my art world is kind of like your art world like you know I'm a zinester that's kind of like my main quote-unquote art form Mm -hmm. that I sell as a artist but also like we're not in in design we're really especially if you go through this like the university design system you're always kind of working for a client like you're Mm. always doing something for someone else Yeah, I feel like I don't understand, like, art practice, Mm. even though I'm, like, friends with artists. Yeah. And so that was one thing I've been doing this, like, quarantine, is, like, just doing things and calling it art. (laughs) Or, like, there was a moment where I was, like, posting pictures online. I'm not going to go too Mm. into detail about it. (laughs) But part of that, like, posting images online, even though those images weren't the images themselves weren't quote unquote art. It was just like the practice of that and the the thinking and putting them out there and like yeah. force, not forcing myself, but those things. So yeah, I always feel weird in the art world, but then I like meet people who like truly aren't in the art world. Like a lot of people in my program just mm-hmm. like have no background in art in design. And I'm like, let's go to the AGO. Like, I want to show you some art. And they're like, I don't (laughs) know. I like what I'm like, 
they're like, whenever I go to art galleries, I feel like I don't understand it. You know, the typical people who don't get art. And I'm like, look, you know what I like to do at the AGO? And this, this is my secret to enjoying art. Here's what I do at the AGO. I go into the portraits. I go say hi to the one dog in one painting that I really love. That's loving art. And then I like to go to like the, there's like all the snuff bottles Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and like carved miniatures from Pan Asia. And I love to go through them and look at all the people having sex on the tiny bottles. And that's appreciating art. And then I also like to go to like modern art and be an asshole and say, oh, my kid can do that. My kid could make that. Once I did that and friends were like, oh my God, stop that. You're embarrassing us. I'm like, who cares? This is me enjoying the art. Let me go and enjoy it. I found through my last 10 years of like engaging in art and design, other people who enjoy art in these ways as a joke, as a bit, as something funny and not serious, even Mm -hmm. if it is like serious, you know, I go into the portrait gallery. It's about the vibe. It's about the time. It's about it, you know, and also what you bring to it. Like, I like the fact that you pay attention to that little dog in the one painting way more (laughs) than that painting, probably. Yeah. Do you know which dog I'm talking about? It's that, so, like, if you're walking into the AGO and you just go, like, straight and you're, like, in that, like, portrait gallery. Like the rotting fruit Dutch gallery? Yeah, yeah. There's, like, a woman and she's very fancy and Mm -hmm. she's holding, he's, like, a spaniel kind of guy oh is he like a little spotted like white with the brown spots yeah yes i know he's white with the brown spots (laughs) is there any thoughts that you have that you want to close on about design or the art world or or institutions oh yeah institutions i mean i've been thinking a lot about because i so i've recently applied to teach at ocad Mm -hmm. and i continue to want to teach in like these schools really if I could just get like a teaching job at Emily Carr Mm -hmm. even if it's just sessional that would be great (laughs) and because I like really think about my design education and the things that I brought in myself to learn like everything that's like you know social justice I essentially brought into my design practice myself through taking courses that were outside of my programs. Mm -hmm. So like we met in the curatorial course, which I took as my one elective. So I was like, get me out of business school. (laughs) I miss art and artists. And, And in my undergrad, the course that did it for me was this sociology of design course taught by an instructor I really love she's like a critical theory major and this person this instructor she knew nothing about design she's like I am an art person so I'm here to open the conversation and to guide it but like please like let's all learn together Mm -hmm. and it was an elective and there was literally four designers in it and then the rest were like art yeah or like critical theory majors and it was like why isn't this mandatory like why is designers in schools like why aren't we learning the sociological effects of what we make Mm -hmm. or like how things mean things to other people why are we only learning that in the language of corporate client relationships so with with that being said I would love to to teach in an institution even though they're terrible but I've also been thinking a lot about what does it look like to teach outside of institutions Mm. and what does that practice look like and how do I do that I've been following this really interesting Instagram account for a couple more like a month now called the black apple this teacher she teaches elementary school k to eight and she's opening like an alternative school because of COVID, but also because of the lack of teaching of social, emotional Mm -hmm. justice equity within the school system for people. So 
like how do I take the knowledge and the experience I've gained from these really hard to navigate and inaccessible institutions and to use disseminate one last time and disseminate it like amongst community, uh-huh. right? So those are my kind of last thoughts on institutions. Um, I think they've, they, you know, have obviously become too powerful and also are just so large and immovable that in such a ever-changing world um, lack the agility to keep up. And so they uphold the status quo because they know they, if they don't uphold it and they're not agile, they're going to become obsolete. Yeah. I think that that's why white men are panicking right now. Yeah. You know, and it's like, yeah, you could, but you could also just like learn to be different. Right? Yeah. Or they could just learn. Yeah. They could just learn. Period. Thanks for listening to Hopping the Fence, a podcast dedicated to the fringes of the Canadian art scene. If you have an artist you would like to hear interviewed, would like to correct slash fact check a past episode, or would like to chat, feel free to send me a message on Instagram at hoppingthefence or by email at rebeccaecasolino at gmail.com. If you would like to support the podcast, head to our website and visit the About page to check out our Patreon. But first, if you aren't already paying for the labor of Black and Brown people in your community, visit their Patreons or GoFundMes, like right now. Maybe even check out One Dish, One Mike's Patreon, which will be linked in the show notes. Thanks to OCAD University for their financial support, my project supervisor Amish Morell for his advice and guidance, and Claudia Slogar-Rick for all of her extra help. Original artwork for Hopping the Fence by Alex Gregory. Original music by Jessica Price-Eisner. Thanks so much. Bye.